right, there's your 30 seconds. So what belongs to the Lord? Start sharing with me some things. All right, everything's good. What specifically in these verses is mentioned? Earth? What else? The seas? What else? All who dwell in it, the people that live there. Rivers? And the mountains? Everything that the earth contains? And so we could say that everything belongs to the Lord. You guys are right when you think that. But the psalmist goes in to talk about some certain details. The earth is the Lord's and everything that it contains. Why does the earth belong to it? Because he's made it. He's created it. He's the king over it. And because he's created the earth, that means that everything that dwells in the earth and everything that is upon the earth, he owns and he rules over. We are his subjects. The universe, the earth, is his dominion. Verse 2 talks about why. It says because he's founded it upon the seas, established it upon the rivers or the ascending waters. The Lord God created the heavens and the earth back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. And we need to understand that God holds the title deed to all things in his hand. Now verse 3 asks this question. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? There in Jerusalem, the folks would worship at the temple. The temple was up on a hill. Folks addressed the temple, called the temple the Temple Mount. It's where they would ascend to come to worship the Lord. You, you'll notice in Scripture that you always went up to Jerusalem and you always went up to the temple. Even if you were headed south, you were still going up to Jerusalem because you were making the climb. And it was both of physical significance because the temple was seated on a hill, but it was also of spiritual significance because the Lord is supposed to be high and lifted up. The king over all. The Lord over all. And so we need to understand and realize that when we come to worship God, we are making a spiritual ascent to his throne room. Who is able to do that? Now, I know this is not a place of worship, per se. And I know that it's not really situated on a hill, especially if you've ever been there to see it. But let's just take the, the White House for a moment. You want to? I mean, the president is the executive officer of our nation, right? So even though we have three branches of government, people often address the president and look to the president as kind of the, the ruler of our land. Who gets to go into the White House? There's one person, right, that just comes to the top of your mind. Who is that? The president. He lives there. That's his house, at least for a few years. Who else gets to go there? Servants? Secret service? Who else? The people he invites in. This is good. We're going to come back to that. His family. His family gets to live there with him. Gets to be with him. Do that. Yeah, national champions, right? They win the big trophies. They put on the rings. They get to come in. Do what? Yep. Okay. Dignitaries. Foreign dignitaries from other countries. 
All right, let me ask you this question. Who does not get to go into the White House? <laughs> Nick Weber, okay. No, this, this is something that, that we need to think about when it comes to who can ascend the hill of the Lord, who can worship him, who may stand in his holy place, is how he phrases the question in the second line. When we talk about worshiping God, and we talk about coming together to worship him, I want you to think of who can come before him to worship him. Let's put it this perspective. God's the king of all kings, and places like this church, this is not the only place where people worship him, but places like this facility where we have worship services, we sing praise to the Lord, we pray to him, we study his word, we give offerings to him. Who gets to come in through the doors of this church? Do I? All who wish. I like that. In Psalm 24, we need to understand the, the context from which David was writing. There were certain places of the temple that were off limits to certain people. In fact, in the Holy of Holies, there in the center of the, the temple, the heart of the temple where the Ark of God rested, only the high priest was allowed once a year. In the holy place, just outside the Holy of Holies, only certain priests who were appointed to do certain tasks in worship and honor of God were allowed to, to go in there to worship. And then outside, there at the altar, other priests were allowed to worship, provide offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. The temple also had been built with different courts. So there was a court of the Jewish people where Jewish men were allowed to go. There's a court of women where women were allowed to go. The court of Gentiles where Gentiles were allowed to go. And on the one hand, we might think, well, that seems kind of mean to not let people come and to worship God. But on the other hand, we might see evidence for the reverential aspect we ought to have when we approach God to worship Him. I mean, after all, we do really want to say that anybody and everybody is welcome through these doors, don't we? I think we do. We, we do a good job of that. But then on the other hand, what would happen if just anybody or everybody came and walked through these church doors? I said, yeah, God, I wouldn't have a problem with that. Well, you might. I was talking with Dr. Tom Jones, who's the president out at Williams, and he'd spent some time in, in California. And contrary to my stereotypical opinion of Californians, not all of them are crazy. But a few of, few of the stories that Dr. Jones told me kind of made me go, they had visited a church in San Francisco, and everybody's welcome to come and participate in their worship services. And lo and behold, who would walk through the very front doors of their church but a stark naked man? And he just walks in, sits down in the pew. One of the deacons of the church goes over to, to talk to him and, and to address him pun intended. And so he sits down and he, he talks to him and he's trying to, you know, tell this guy he's glad that he's come to worship 
at church, but you know, we we wear clothes because we we feel that that's important to cover ourselves and to live in reverence before God as we worship Him. And the guy really, I think, was just coming to cause a stir. And so after he realized that people weren't going to get in an uproar and just boot him out of the building, he got up and he walked out. But what would have happened if people from all walks of life, and not just all walks of life, but all type of sinful behaviors, came into this church building on a Sunday morning without any regard to the sin that they had been living in and to the holiness of the God that they were approaching. You see, reality is this. There is not a one of us who deserves to ascend the hill of the Lord. Not a one. In fact, I would dare say that it doesn't matter if we got clothes on or if we're stark naked. The Lord sees every bit of who we are. He knows our sins, he knows our failures, he knows our faults, he knows our mistakes, he knows our bad attitudes, he knows our misjudgments. He just he knows who we are. And if that's the case, then who gets to stand in his presence? Who gets to ascend his hill? Who gets to worship him? And I like what Dr. Norville said because I think he's spot on. It's those whom the king invites to worship him. The ones who get to go to the White House are the ones that the president invites into the White House. Be they family members, or be they secret service agents, or be they servants or foreign dignitaries, they're invited to come. The ones who get to ascend God's hill and the ones who get to stand in his holy place are the ones that God invites in. And though he, he doesn't play games... And he doesn't go through this stereotypical, well, I like you, you look okay, I don't like you, stay away. Here is who ascends the hill of the Lord and who stands in his holy place, verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. He who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood. He who has not sworn deceitfully. The one who gets to go in is the one who is invited. And the one who is invited wants to come and wants to worship. You see, because the only way that we could have clean hands, a pure heart, a soul that's lifted up to truth and not falsehood, and a mouth that speaks truth and has not sworn deceitfully and does not lie is one who has come to God first for forgiveness. In order to truly worship God when we come together as believers in Him, we must first come to Him realizing our stance before Him as sinners. And I think this is specifically why people were not allowed into the Holy of Holies in the temple in the Old Testament. Because they were sinners. They, they couldn't stand before a holy God. When we come to worship, we do so as people who have been forgiven. Because we've been invited and made clean by this forgiveness. We're encouraged to participate in the worship of our Father who is in heaven. 
He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul, soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, that is the person who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place. Worship is not an activity for unbelievers. It's an activity for believers. And that's not to say that unbelievers are not welcome. It's just to say that unbelievers don't realize all that's taking place when we come together to worship the Lord. And hopefully, when unbelievers walk through the doors of our church building on Sunday mornings or Sunday nights or Wednesday nights, and we got something going on, and we're lifting high the name of Jesus, and we're worshiping Him, they see how we worship Him, and they realize, I, I want that. That's what I was made for. I want to participate in that as well. And so really, it doesn't just become that the king himself invites people to worship directly. He does and has done so through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was lifted up from the earth and he draws all men to himself. But the Lord also gives us the privilege and the opportunity to extend the invitation everywhere that we go. Once people see the cleanness of our hands, not because of what we have done, but because of what God has done for us in forgiving us. And once people realize the pureness of our hearts, not because we're good within ourselves, because, but because the righteousness of God has been given to us through His Son, Christ. And when people see that we haven't lifted up our souls to falsehood, or we haven't believed something in vain, but we've trusted in the truth... And when people see that we're not double-tongued, but we're speaking the truth and speaking in love, then they say, I want to go worship too. I want to ascend the hill of the Lord. I want to stand in His holy place. And notice what happens to the worshiper in verse 5. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Those who worship God receive a blessing every time they do so. Those who worship God are reminded that they have been made righteous in his eyes. After all, the only way we could stand before a holy God is if he allows us to stand before him. And he does so because he makes us righteous when we come to him for forgiveness. He forgives us in order to give us the freedom to worship him. Before, we were enslaved to sin. And when we're chained to sin, we can't give God everything that he deserves in our lives. Because we're bound to something. And it's holding us back from giving our all and laying our lives on the altar but because Jesus laid his life down on the cross and sacrificed himself for the sins of the world, the chains of people who once lived in sin have been broken. And so now, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, by the mercy of God, or by the mercies of God, we present our bodies as living sacrifices, which is our holy and acceptable, which is our spiritual act of worship. The reference to Jacob at the end of verse 6 is interesting. You remember the story of Jacob in Genesis? He was born with a twin brother just a little bit older than him. His name was Esau. Esau was so named because he was red. <coughs> Excuse me. Esau meant red. Jacob came out of the womb holding on to his brother's heel. Jacob's name 
is derived from that idea of a heel supplanter, one who trips up, a deceiver, a supplanter. Jacob, all throughout his life, struggles. He wants to have Esau's birthright. He wants to receive Esau's blessing. And so he deceives his brother Esau, steals his birthright from him over a bowl of porridge. If you don't remember the the Bible story from growing up, you can go read it later. And then as he continues to grow up, he later on steals Esau's blessing from their blind father, Isaac, who's laying in a bed near the end of his life. And Jacob has to run and he has to flee because Esau, his brother, wants to kill him. And so Jacob runs and flees and goes to his mother, Rebekah's house that she had grown up in. And there finds Rebekah's brother, Laban. And while he's there, Jacob meets a trickster in Laban. Meets somebody who's just as crooked and deceitful, if not more so, than he was. And when he comes into Laban's house, the first thing that catches his attention is a young pretty lady by the name of Rachel. Jacob's, or Laban's younger daughter. And Jacob says, Laban, I, I would... I would have your daughter for a wife. What must I do in order to marry her? So Laban tells Jacob to work for him for seven years. If he works for seven years, then he can receive his daughter's hand in marriage. And so he works for seven years, receives his daughter's hand in marriage. But on the wedding night, Laban tricks Jacob. I'm still not sure how the details of this all work out, but Laban pulled a fast one. And he switched places of his daughter's. And instead of sending Rachel into the honeymoon tent with Jacob, he sends his older daughter, Leah. Jacob wakes up in the morning and goes, what in the world has happened? And he goes to Laban. Laban says, well, it's not the custom for for people here to give our younger daughters in marriage before we give our older daughters. I tell you what, you work another seven years for me, you can have Rachel. He's been swindled. So Jacob works another seven years, receives Rachel as a bride. Rachel and Leah fight. Then they start to fight over how many kids they're having. Rachel is barren for quite a significant period of time. Leah is just bearing children, bearing children, but she's still unloved in Jacob's eyes. And lo and behold, thirteen, well, 12 children later, 11 boys and a girl, Jacob and his family start to leave from Laban. Because Jacob's tired of having to live under Laban's trickery and deceit. God's blessed Jacob that whole time in spite of the hardships and trials that he's been through. And they start to head back to Jacob's land. And as they start to head back to Jacob's land, Jacob goes, oh wait... Laban's behind me and he doesn't like me, but Esau's before me and he doesn't like me even more. I might be in a little bit of trouble. And so Jacob divides up all of his possessions and all of the people in his entourage. He sends his livestock before him. Donkeys and sheep and goats and servants with him to go before him for Esau. And then He sends some of his family ahead of him, kind of in stages. The handmaidens of Leah and Rachel and their children, and then Leah and her children. Then 
Rachel and Joseph. And then Jacob decides to camp for the night. There with an enemy at his back and with an enemy before him. And that night Jacob receives a visitor from heaven. He doesn't know that this man's from heaven. He's probably a little scared for his life. And they start to rustle and tussle on the ground. And I don't imagine it was a play fight from Jacob's perspective. I imagine he's just trying to make sure he stays alive. And as the dawn is about to break, Jacob falls to the ground. And the man who is wrestling with him realizes that he's not yet prevailed over Jacob. And so he touches Jacob's hip socket. And Jacob falls down on the ground, lame and crippled in one leg. And he grabs a hold of this guy's ankle. You remember how Jacob was born? And as Jacob grabs a hold of this guy's ankle, the guy says, let me go. Jacob says, I don't want to let you go. And in this encounter, Jacob wasn't wrestling with just any human being. He was wrestling with the Lord himself. The man was asked by Jacob, what is your name? But instead, the man responded, your name, your name shall no longer be Jacob. Your name shall be Israel, the prince of God or one who struggles with God. God says, because you struggle with, with God and with men and, and you prevailed. But in reality, Jacob's laying there on the ground holding on to the ankle of the Lord. He hadn't prevailed. He lost. He lost. Jacob had an encounter with the living God. And he wasn't one who was standing. Rather, he was one who was lying down, face in the dirt, just grasping and grappling for anything that he could hold on to. This is also the picture of worship. You see, because when we come to God and worship, we're coming to God desperate for his blessing. Jacob, in fact, told the man whom he wrestled with, I will not let you go until you bless me. And here what we see in verse 5 is that the one who worships with clean hands and a pure heart receives a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. David was crying out in this psalm that he was in the same spiritual shape and all of those around him and his generation were in the same state as Jacob. It was a generation of swindlers and tricksters. It was a group of deceivers and liars. It was a group of people who had not honored the Lord as they ought to have. But it was a group of people who earnestly desired to seek the face of God. Not because they were worthy, but because He was worthy and they longed to be in His presence. And then verse 7 moves from this idea of seeking God's face with our faces down in the dirt, bowing in humble homage before Him to this. Verse 7 says, Lift up your heads, O gates, 
and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? He is the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord who is mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. In verses 1 through 6, we get the the perspective of worshipers approaching God and His place. But in verses 7 through 10, we get the idea of the King of glory approaching worshipers in the place where we live. And we might be tempted to think at first how wonderful it would be to stand before God in His holy presence and worship Him in heaven. And it will be glorious and it will be great and be wonderful one day. But the fact of the matter is this. It's not just that we're going to be with God. It's that God is coming to be with us. He is coming to reign over His earth forever and ever. You remember how verse 1 began this song? The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The world and all who dwell in it. The King of glory is one, one day coming back to rule over all of His creation and all of His creatures. And when He does so, the doors will open up and He will be seated on His throne. And we will have no choice but to bow before Him in humble worship and adoration. But at the same time, I think that He will look at us and lift up our heads and we'll stand and we'll worship Him And we'll do so not because of our own righteousness or our own goodness, but because He has made our hands clean and He's made our hearts pure. He saved us and we don't have to lift up our souls to falsehood. We can trust in Him and we do trust in Him. And we speak the truth as we sing His praise. I remember standing at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia at a student life camp when I was in high school. And after the camp's pastor's message, we had come to a time where we had an invitation. And so uh, folks began to go to their youth ministers and to speak with them and and to talk to them. And I remember uh, looking over to my left and noticing this guy that he had been coming to our youth group and he'd come to camp but he was one of those guys that I was like, you're probably coming to camp for this girl, you know, you're not coming to camp to hear from God. And uh, he was one of those guys that I was like, mm, glad you're here. How about you stay over there? You know, those kind of things. And I looked over, this was about the second or third night of camp, and I looked over and he's just standing there and his hands are lifted up in the air, just like this. And his eyes are closed, and he's singing out his heart. He's singing this song. Give us clean hands and give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Give us clean hands and give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Oh, God, let us be a generation that would seek, that would seek your face. Oh, God of Jacob. Give us clean hands and give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. And look, I'll be honest with you. We got on the church van to leave Monday morning. 
I really could have cared less if that guy had come with us to camp. But that night when I looked over and saw him worshiping God during invitation time, I went, man, I missed it. But he got it. He came to realize the night before, I didn't know because I hadn't been around him, he came to realize that he was a sinner and he'd given his life to Jesus Christ and he was beginning to experience the life change and so he's pouring out his heart and praise to God as he's singing this song. And that's when I realized, man, God wants people to worship him and he wants all people to worship him. Those who've had dirty hands and impure hearts, he wants to make their hands and their hearts clean and pure so that they can worship him. He's in the business for forgiving people of their sins so that he can give them freedom to worship him, to sing his praise, to give him the glory that he is due. And then I looked at myself and I thought my own heart and mind, I thought, God, are, are my hands clean in this situation? And is my heart pure? Because God really, my attitude has been to wash my hands of this guy and not have anything to do with it. And really my heart hasn't been one of Christ-filled compassion to see him come to Jesus Christ or to see him changed. And so there, during the invitation time singing this song, I had my own little experience and encounter with the Lord. When I just had to let him come in and change my attitude and my mindset. I had to ask him to forgive me, to wash my hands and make them clean and to cleanse my heart and to make me pure. So Nick's going to come and lead us in this song tonight as, uh, as we close out our time of deeper into worship. And I just invite you, maybe you want to stand and sing, maybe you want to stay seated. But I invite you to worship God with clean hands.